beloved congregation, um, probably the statement in the book of Galatians that has most arrested me over the years is where the Apostle Paul says at one point to that troubled church, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? See, at that point, Paul had a difficult message to give to that church, and he was concerned that it would be received as the attack of an enemy. Because the truth, where sometimes spoken, can wound, it can hurt, where it exposes where there is lack in ourselves, where there is deficiency, it can feel and be experienced as the attack of an enemy who would destroy us. But of course, Paul at that point was not an enemy, but he was a friend. A true friend, you see, is one who does not tell you what you wish to hear, but tells you what you need to hear. Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And where was that ever more clearly evidenced than that of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here is Jesus, and he is, has before him his own congregation, his group of disciples. And they come to him with this question, don't they, at the beginning of this chapter, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So there's this question that they have, and Jesus sees that there is such a, a desperately serious spiritual problem that lies behind that question. Here are Christians, and they have an unchristian attitude. They are trying to discern which is the greatest among them, how it is they can elevate themselves and look down on others. And so does this grieve the heart of the Lord Jesus, that you could say this whole chapter proceeds in such a way as to give one rebuke after another to this mode of thinking. Jesus, who desires that the attitude of these disciples be corrected, he, he provides to them some words that would have been difficult to hear. Consider how he says after he summoned this child and, and points to him and says, except you be converted or changed and become as this little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Consider how he says down there in verse 7, But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were, be, were better for him than a millstone were, car, were hanged around his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Or consider how he, he continues on and he talks about himself, how he, uh, in verse 11, is the son of man that has come to save that which is lost. And he goes on in verse 12, How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And the the thrust of all this is that the way that Christ would regard each one of his people 
is so precious, so important, so in, so utterly, absolutely essential to his mission that we ought to regard one another as brothers and sisters in the same way. And the brook, it sort of continues by way of instruction, doesn't it? He proceeds in verses 15 to 20 to give very clear guidelines about how it is to maintain the unity and love among brothers and sisters. There's clear direction here about how it is we approach people who have sinned against us individually and then bring in another to come with us to try to recover that brother or sister and until finally uh, it comes to the point of the church where the church is called upon to administer loving discipline. And in all these things, you see how Christ is seeking to bring his people into a proper way of thinking. As I was reading this chapter and reflecting upon how important each one of Christ's people is to him, it was, it was a convicting thing. How often do I not value my brothers and sisters, in the way that Jesus does. Well, I hope, congregation, if you would find the message of this sermon convicting, you would see it that it does come from a place of love, a desire that we would have the heart of Christ and the common love that he would have us to exhibit. And in particular, I'd like to zero in upon the theme of forgiveness, the theme of forgiveness. And simply two points this morning. We will consider first Christ's instruction about forgiveness and second, his parable about forgiveness. Well, it's a lot of rebuke to hear in in one um, sitting from the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus, and Jesus here, he's speaking these things, and he receives kind of a, a question from Peter at this point. Peter is often the one who sort of speaks out, he, he blurts out what he's thinking uh, when Jesus is giving his teaching, and, and how often do you find your own thoughts on the lips of this apostle? Often he stands in for the sort of things that we would think and the sort of things we would say if we were confronted with this kind of instruction. And here, Peter has, has heard the, the such pivotal importance that Jesus places upon the reconciliation between brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Peter comes up with this question That is on his mind. Verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft or how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Now here you see that Jesus has been speaking in such absolute terms about the need to receive and to be reconciled, to forgive those who sin against us upon their acknowledgement of their sin 
and their repentance of it. We are to be a forgiving people, Jesus has been saying. And we are to take great care that in no way does our lack of forgiveness bring us under the condemnation of those who would offend one of Christ's little ones. And Peter is saying, is there any limit to this principle of forgiveness? Is there any, any way in which this is just going to carry on forever and ever? And so he, he poses this question. How many times is someone going to commit this sin against me and ask for my forgiveness and I'm going to tell them that I don't hold it against them? How often am I supposed to be reconciled, reconciled to someone who has offended me? And he comes up with a number. Is it, is it seven times? You see, according to... Uh, the Jewish history, the rabbis in those days had a whole principle in place. It, it worked like this. If someone would sin against you three times in the same sin, after the third time, you had no obligation to forgive them anymore. And so Peter, he must have thought here that he was being a very generous and kind person in offering to forgive one of these people a whole seven times. More than twice the number of times that the Jews of that day would have required him to forgive. And lest that we would look at this, and especially in light of what Jesus will say next, and say what a, what a fool Peter is, how, how stingy and how cruel of him to place a limit on his forgiveness. Before we would jump to that conclusion, I think we ought to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, at what point do we find it difficult to forgive others? Yes, it's all well and good to receive forgiveness from others. We, we love that. Where we have made mistakes, where we have even committed great sins, and when we have asked that that not be counted against us, that we be enabled to be restored to fellowship with those who are dear to us. We, we tr- greatly treasure those simple words, I forgive you. But once the table is reversed, once it is ourselves that have been hurt, then it becomes a very different thing. And once, yes, we'll forgive. Second, okay, Third, really? Fourth, fifth. Surely there's a limit. Surely there's a point at which we say, that is enough for me. I have no interest in forgiving. Surely it's my rights that ought to be considered. Surely it's my desires, it's my dignity. That ought to be respected. And so we at a certain point want to say, surely we have to put the brakes on this sort of principle. But of course, Jesus comes at exactly that point. That exactly that point in which we would want to say, there has to be a limit to our forgiveness. And what does he say in verse 22? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times Seven. And the point here is not that you would multiply seven times seven, and, and we could ask the children, do you have your multiplication tables so 
well that you can, uh, you can know what 70 times 7 would equal. Maybe you'd say, well, pastor, that's 490. Surely after 490 times that would be enough to forgive someone. But the, the obvious point that Jesus is making is that there ought to be no limit to the forgiveness of the Christian. Even if you were to count up all 490 times, that is, does not cut it. The willingness of a Christian to not hold offenses against others, it ought to be without limit. Jesus is definitive on this point, congregation, and where Jesus has spoken, we have no right to quarrel with him. How can any one of us call Jesus Lord and not do as he says? If this does not weigh upon us, that Jesus has a heart that desires forgiveness among his people, and the question becomes, have we any love for Christ at all? Well, thus far you have this very straightforward instruction from the Lord Jesus and you see how it flows from everything else he's been saying the precious regard he has for each one of his blood-bought people the the singular focus that he has as the son of God come down from heaven in order to redeem each one of his precious chosen people that very same violent strong, invincible love that a sinner would be able to cling to for their salvation, that very same love for Christ, it, it also impel, compels us to see how that is to be influencing our own forgiveness for others. But even if just his instruction is not enough, you notice how Jesus provides this parable. And as always with parables, they're some of the most important parts of the New Testament scriptures because they take principles that can seem a little bit abstract and they boil it down into a very straightforward story where anyone, even a child, can understand. And this parable, which Jesus gives at this point, I think is very important that we would reflect upon it and come to understand the principles that are being explained to us. Look with me, beginning at verse 21, and we'll, sorry, 23, and let's listen to this first scene of the parable that Jesus is conveying to us. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which ought him 10,000 talents. Now here you have someone who is the servant of a king. And in, in the context of this parable, it seems likely that he is actually one of the government officials who's in charge of collecting taxes. This would be like someone who's in charge of the CRA here in Canada or the IRA in the United States who is in charge of collecting taxes for the government. And at this point, the king tells him, 
that he is short 10,000 talents. And the important thing to recognize about that is that is such an astonishing amount of money. We're talking like millions of dollars, much more than it would be possible for any normal person to owe. And the scene goes on. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. There you have the scene is, is sort of completed for us. This servant of the king is so in debt that in order to even repay a fraction of that, he's going to be sold into slavery, into bondage. His wife and children are going to be thrown into slavery. He's going to lose everything, everything in his life. So he's got no way to get out of this situation, no way to bargain or to repay this colossal debt that is before him. And so he has nothing that he can do except to simply plead for mercy. Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Well, this king is a merciful king. And so he looses him, he he releases him, and he, he simply forgives him the debt. Imagine if the... Uh, the government of our land, after a, such a colossal failure, maybe billions and trillions of dollars lost, were to simply say, it's okay, just you can simply go your way. Imagine the level of relief upon those words, your debt is forgiven. Now Jesus here, he's he's making a very simple point from this part of the parable, and that is the foundation for everything in the Christian life is forgiveness. Forgiveness. To be a Christian is to be someone who knows the forgiveness of God. God has made a way in which a sinner who has a colossal debt against heaven can be forgiven. You and me and each one of us have sinned against the laws of God. God has revealed to us that which is good, and we have fallen short of the mark. And every single sin that we have committed all our lifelongs, it has piled up such a colossal debt. Billions and trillions of sins must be accounted for. But for the Christian, the one who has fled to the mercy of Jesus Christ and him crucified, trusting in him alone for salvation, they have this word pronounced over them, forgiven. All will never be remembered. Your sins are as far from you as east is from west, cast into the bottom of the sea of God's gracious forgetfulness. And maybe we can remember the first time that really became a reality to us. Maybe it filled us with such joy, the knowledge that I am forgiven and nothing is held against me. God has pronounced me righteous in Christ and there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And if 
We remember that time. How did that inform everything about us? Everything we did, everything we prayed about, every conversation, every interaction, it was in the light of God's divine forgiveness. And so that would have been on this man's mind as well, I'm sure, as he was walking away from that king. He had, he had his debt forgiven. But as we will see in, in proceeding, we have every interest congregation in never leaving this basic place of having God's forgiveness inform everything. The point at which we would forget that we are purchased with a price that everything short of eternity in hell is undeserved grace. At that exact point, we are liable to fall into the problem of these disciples and begin to think ourselves something where we are nothing. The Christian life is grounded on God's forgiveness. So there's your first scene in this parable, but then the scene changes and we have a different scene. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which ought him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience on me with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So here you have the, the servant who had just been forgiven this colossal debt from the king. He walks out of the king's palace and walking beside him, there is another servant of the king. And in comparison to what he had been owing the king, this man owed, owed him a very small debt, a mere 100. And yet you see how he responds. He grabs him by the throat. He means business. He doesn't particularly care what consequences will befall this servant. He insists, pay me now, pay me all, pay what you owe me. And a striking thing, he cries out for patience. He says, just have patience on me. I will pay thee all. Very similar to what he had said to the king. But he refuses, throws him into prison until the debt is repaid. What we're, of course, taught here, congregation, is that the principle of forgiveness that we receive from God, it must influence our relationship with others, especially our relationships within the Christian church. Look at how ugly this lack of forgiveness is. Look at the cruelty of it. Look how it is all focused upon self, me, what I am owed, my right. Look how it savagely tears down another image bearer of God. Look how it will settle for nothing than strict, absolute justice. What other people owe me. No mercy, no grace, no forgiveness. It's a departure. 
a departure from how God has dealt with sinners in the gospel. In the gospel, God says, without money, without price, without condition, forgiveness for all sins, you could never repay the debt that you owe God. And so how, how congregation, how can we not have this influence our relationships with others? Is there not this jarring contrast that we should insist on mercy towards ourselves and likewise insist upon only justice, only what is owed when it comes to our relationship with others. But there's this third thing that is set forth in another scene. Verses 31 and following. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called them, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now it's important congregation that when we interpret parables and their theological meaning. We don't press things beyond what Jesus intended. The point of this parable is not that there can be those who are freely forgiven and then can lose that forgiveness. The point here at this point in the parable is much more simple. You have here uh, this servant who the king had freely forgiven who had then seized upon his neighbor and cast him into prison. Others see. And we ought to note that, shouldn't we? Others see when there is inconsistency in the life. So also, in this case, others saw what this fellow servant had done. He had received forgiveness, but would give none in return. And then the word got back to the king to the Lord. He summoned him before him and called him that wicked servant. How is that I could forgive you all this debt and that you would not have compassion as I have pitied you? Says the Lord was angry, he was wroth, very angry, and delivered him to the tormentors. He was thrown into a place of torment until he paid everything. And in the context of that parable, it was a debt that could never be repaid, no matter how long it endured. The message here, congregation, is not that a true Christian can can lose their forgiveness. The point is that there is such an absolute impossibility that the Christian 
would live a life in definitive unforgiveness towards their repentant brothers and sisters, that it simply is the case that they don't know forgiveness at all. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. That's a hard saying, isn't it? When we hear messages about how no homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God, or no idolaters shall inherit the kingdom of God, no no unbelievers shall inherit the kingdom of God, when we hear about how he who has no love for Christ, let him be accursed, those, those things might make a certain sort of sense to the Christian. But how about this saying? The ones who will not forgive, they also shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The message of Jesus is so very plain. If we would be those who pray to the Lord, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, we must also be those who forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness towards others. It is the sure mark and evidence that we know the forgiveness of God. And where we would willingly withhold that, where we would say, yes, I will have God's forgiveness, but those who sin against me, I will harbor that grudge. I will keep a record of the wrong. I will say they must repay me until... The smallest penny is repaid. Such a person is not a Christian. And where this rebuke goes out to each one of us, we have such reason to search our hearts. Do we have in our hearts the love that Christ enjoins here? A love that willingly surrenders our own rights in order for the reconciliation and unity of others. All such forgiveness, congregation, does not come from us. The same Christ who commands, he also freely gives what he commands by his gracious spirit. Everyone who truly knows the forgiveness of sins through the gospel, they are also enabled by his marvelous spirit working in the heart to see exactly the logic of this parable. To see that how can we possibly withhold forgiveness? Where Christ has such a burning, fiery love for each one of his little ones, the Christian says, that is the love that I must have as well. Though it may be hard, though we may so often fail, The child of God will be enabled by the grace of Christ at work in their hearts to willingly take up their cross and follow after the master. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? There, Jesus on the cross, enduring the torments and agonies of hell. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus willing to even pray for sinners who would torture him to death. And where 
Christ has brought us into that kingdom of grace and love. I am persuaded that he will give us that very same love. A love that does not harbor lingering resentment, but willingly surrenders what we think we owe in order that there would not be even one of the little ones that should stumble. May God bless this message unto each one of our hearts. Amen.